You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. All right, Mark, it's February 18th. We're back. Back. And joined by our friend and partner, Jim Schultz, frequent CNN commentator and uh, as recently involved. as last night, Jim, I was watching you defend the indefensible once again. Oh, come on, Mark. And, and you know what's funny about that? I took so much flack from everyone on the internet, on Twitter last night. Before I went on, I had no connectivity. I couldn't hear what Andrew was, Anderson was saying. Yeah. The only thing I could hear was the guy in the microphone. The right. moment I couldn't answer a question because I couldn't hear him, it was hilarious. <laughs> right. I got, they jumped all over me. I said, he's yeah. conveniently can't hear, hear the question because he doesn't very, want to answer it. Jim, it was very suspicious. Like <laughs> Rosemary Woods and the 18 seconds on the Nixon tapes. Very it was so good. They're killing me on Twitter today. <laughs> killing me. All right. Well-deserved. The people, you got to keep the people happy, Jim. Okay. Jim, tell us what is going to happen. You know, small question. What's going to happen in November, Jim? I I think at this point in time, Trump is poised to win in November. And, you know, if, if you, if you look at the states that he needs to win, how he's doing in those states, you know, the job creation numbers, the economy, all of those things shape up for a successful November. Now, you know, a lot, there's a lot of game to be played and, you know, there is, it's a roller coaster ride day in and day out on this thing. So there's a lot of game to be played, but I think all things being equal right now, he wins in November. I mean, I, to me and Mark and I keep talking about this on the podcast, it's, it depends who's on the other side and you've got Trump in addition to weighing in on the federal judiciary, which we'll get to later. Uh, for sure, um, he he spends a little bit of time on on Bernie and 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 Mike and or Minnie as he prefers to call him, and um, he, he's weighing in on the Democratic primary. So let let's talk about that. Who does Trump most and least want to face in November? I think less less of who, and let's talk a little bit about you know, what a Democratic candidate needs to do in order to win. In my view, one, a Democratic candidate, let's use Pennsylvania because it's a bellwether state, right? So in Pennsylvania, there has to be high African-American turnout for the Democrat, and there has to be some type of cut into Trump's base. And when I say Trump's base, I'm talking about blue-collar Democrats around this state that voted for him the last time. The western part of the state is getting much more red and it's getting more red with folks that are traditionally Democrats. While the eastern part of the state, we've seen this wave of of losses in the counties in suburban Philadelphia, which is indicative of what's going on in suburbs around the country. I do believe that, you know, that 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 the voters that came out for Trump the last time, namely those blue collar Democrats, will show up again and vote for Trump this time because they're working. And they and they see the results of this administration. And I believe that a candidate who can capture that, you know, blue collar, hard hat wearing, lunch pail carrying um, uh, demographic in states like Pennsylvania and Rust Belt states around the country 
could have a chance to to beat Trump. But so far, I don't think any of these candidates, including Mike Bloomberg, for that matter, you know, he he's the guy, you know, he I think I, I look at Mike Bloomberg a lot like we looked at Mitt Romney in 2012. He's just another rich guy that really can't identify with the working people for whatever reason. Trump has been able to do that. You know, he's not exactly he's not exactly a guy that's that's worn a hard hat or carried a lunch pail every day, but he's been able to identify with those folks in a way that no other Republican in recent history has been able to do. And a Democrat's going to have to come in and steal that away. That's going to be difficult for a rich guy like Mike Bloomberg. It's going to be difficult for an Amy Klobuchar, and it's certainly going to be difficult for a for a uh, Bernie Sanders. But I have to tell you, I think Bernie is the one guy that's a disruptor in this whole thing. So, you know, you can't sleep on him as it relates to that demographic. Well, disruptor let's against start, disruptor. Yeah. Let's start with what we, uh, the common ground. Bernie's a disruptor. I don't think anybody is going to disagree with that. I think going just back to the beginning, Howard and, and Jim, I, agree with a lot of what Jim had to say, but I think that uh, it's all of that and a little different at the same time. Trump can be beaten in Pennsylvania, period. He can also win Pennsylvania, but let's remember that in the perfect storm of Hillary Clinton and Jim Comey and Vladimir Putin and whatever else happened in 2016, he won Pennsylvania by 30,000 votes. All you do is switch 15. Everything is the same. 15,000 people change their mind and he's not president. So it is going to be, I think, very, very close. I think he can narrowly win. I don't think he will. I think he can most certainly lose. And then you get to what we need to do to make that happen. Right. African-American turnout has to go up, just as Jim said. Millennial turnout has to go up. We got pounded in that demographic also in 2016, just not excited about Hillary. We have to take away some of those votes that Trump got. We've already done that, I think, in the suburbs. And that leaves the folks that Jim was talking about in Altoona and Johnstown and Washington and, and Erie. And yeah, we have to appeal to those people, but you don't have to get them all. It is such a thin margin that Trump had in 2016 that we should be able to build turnout, steal a few votes and come out uh, ahead in Pennsylvania. And I, I think that's pretty much everywhere. And and now back to the disruptor. Can, can Bernie do that? Were he to get the nomination? I don't think he does, by the way. We've talked plenty about that. I still have my theory of the case that says he doesn't. But, but maybe, maybe he can. At one point, everybody thought Joe Biden could not clear that the Joe Biden of recent uh, weeks is in a position to do it, but don't count him out yet either. He comes in second in Nevada. He wins uh, South Carolina and he's back in the hunt. Bloomberg, who knows, Jim? Who knows? Nobody's ever seen anything like it. We have no idea. Colossal failure, 
presidency. Who knows? Right. I, I think the interesting thing about Bloomberg is he's hitting the stage this time. And now for the first time, we're starting to see that, you know, Democrats are really taking a shot at this guy now and holding his feet to the fire on his record. And I think you're going to see more and more of that and whether he can stand up to that outside of just dealing with it with tele- paid television commercials remains to be seen. Well, look, he he did get elected mayor of New York three times. And that's no small feat. And he obviously had to appeal As to a Republican, re- by the way. Well, as an independent, 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 second time or third time around. Yeah. <laughs> right. Second time around. Yes. So we've got a so we've got a Republican on the one hand and a socialist on the other hand. Great choices. But <laughs> Jim, Jim, I, I disagree with one thing you said, which is Amy Klobuchar. I think she could very easily pull in those voters like for example in connor lamb's district in the 17th district of pennsylvania outside pittsburgh democrats that elected a democrat on a pro-gun um uh, agenda and and more of a republican agenda but running as a democrat that's the kind of candidate that is needed on the democratic side to to defeat trump Understood, but Connor Lamb is just a, was just a likable candidate, and he's a likable congressman in his district, which is why I think that that's not one that that at the end of the day we're going to have a very difficult time winning that seat out there. But I also think Howard, if you talk to the union, if you talk to the folks that are that work day in day out, and I've done it, I've spent some time with the unions here in Philadelphia and out in Pittsburgh as of recent, and talk to the leaders of the of of these. Uh, building trades and these folks tell me time and time again that they're that that their constituents their workers the folks that go to work every day and work with their hands and build things are for Trump and it's very hard once someone's invested they voted for him the first time around maybe they didn't but a lot of them did now they're invested in them and now they're now they're going to it becomes very hard to turn that tide with someone who's just going to come in and change their minds. They're not they're voting for Donald Trump because he's Donald Trump. And going back to um, to Mark's point earlier about the suburbs, what didn't happen in the suburbs, that Trump voter doesn't come out. There's not a lot of coattails in off-year elections. They come out for Trump. So it was very easy in in these off-year elections where Trump's not on the ticket for the suburban voter who doesn't like Trump to come out and cast their vote. But the d- problem is, is that the Trump voters weren't going to the polling, po- polling places in those off-year elections. They're coming out this year. Mark, what do you make of the turnout in the first couple of Democratic contests and the implications of the turnout and the primaries for the general. Well, I just want to uh, drop the footnote uh, when talking about our friend, uh, Congressman Lamb, that Connor appeared uh, in an ad carrying a gun, which I don't see Amy doing. So that that district is tricky. That district may be gone, Jim. I hope it is from the Republicans, but it takes somebody as unique as Connor to win it. Look, that's going to be a competitive seat, Mark. But at the end of the day, the folks like their congressman. He's probably doing a good job with constituent yep. services. Yep. He carries a gun on his hip in the commercials, even though his voting record is with Nancy Pelosi, probably 97 percent of the time. I'm not sure that translates into a, a win for Republicans in this that's election right. cycle in that seat. I think there are a couple seats in Pennsylvania we could take back. Not that one. But the point is that those are the voters we're talking about. 
Right. Those voters, suburban women, and African-American turnout. African-American turnout, millennial turnout. Millennial turnout. Urban women, Democrat, Obama, Trump voters. Turnout, you were asking about. So my headline, which I'm uh, borrowing from last podcast, Howard, remains the same. Uh, the revolution hasn't arrived yet. Bernie's theory of uh, his candidacy is that he is going to bring off the sidelines all sorts of voters, mostly kids, mostly millennials, mostly younger voters, if that's a respectful way to capture that demographic. Well, it didn't happen in Iowa. It didn't happen in New Hampshire. He narrowly, narrowly won nonetheless. It, it Turnout in these races is going to start getting much more relevant and uh, indicative as we get to states where there are more Democrats and diverse Democrats. And we'll see. Turnout in the early voting in uh, Nevada is very strong. There are 36,000 people who have voted already. 120,000 were the total caucus in 2016. So you have over, well over a quarter of the uh, votes already cast. Uh, well, let's revisit uh, turnout next podcast. Yeah, I think I want to go back to the African-American voters. I, I think that's going to be a place where I, I think he got 7% of the vote last time, African-American vote. I think there's going to be an increase because of the job numbers, because of, of the success he's had with prison the economy. Reform. I do believe that the you know, I mean, look at you're his, right, look Howard, at his prison reform commercial. and criminal yeah. justice reform. I, I really believe that's a place where he's going to move numbers this time around in play in swing states like Pennsylvania, in particular in cities like Philadelphia. And, you know, all you have to do is pick up a little bit, do a little bit better in the city of Philadelphia. Or and it's a little over bit for worse than it's over for Trump. It's all that. Close. It's all that right. Close. I think can we just I think talk he can get there for 30 seconds about these job numbers that Jim keeps bragging about. Look, the market is at an all-time high, and that benefits anybody in the market, obviously. And that has happened under Trump's presidency, whether he had anything to do with it or not, is the question you have about all presidents and the market. The economy is different than the market, of course. The economy's good. It, it's not great. GDP was higher in the Obama administration than it is in the Trump administration. Job creation was higher in the Obama administration than in the Trump administration. Now, granted, Obama started in a very, the very first four deep years. hole that the prior administration had dug or at least presided over. So I... I Good clarification, Mark. I, right. Well, Howard. Yeah. I mean, it was the I, slowest economic recovery in history, but I, I, you know, I, but, uh, but, but I, I do think Mark, I, you know, you, you can, the Democrats are having a hard time and they're going to continue to have a hard time, you know, saying, well, that was, they, it, they'll convince themselves that it was Obama that made this economy so great. They're not convincing the rest of the American people. O only the far left are convincing oh, yeah. themselves of that. You're not convincing the American people that they're going to take, that Obama's will, will no. take credit for this economy. The swing voters, 
the the folks who voted for Trump the last time, they're not buying it because they're seeing results. They're seeing results in their 401ks and they're seeing results because there are more jobs than there are right now than people. Well, that, than everybody's people right here and everybody's wrong. I mean, look, Mark, the the market is significant, not because. Yes, it's significant because people have more money in their 401ks, but it's the market is a reflection of expectations about the economy on a forward looking basis. The market is forward looking, not backward looking. So what the market is telling us is that the market expects continued economic performance. I mean, that is absolutely what the market is. Jim, obviously, I mean, look, Obama did a very good job of managing the country through a very difficult time. He has a lot to do with where we are now. They both have a lot to do with it. I mean, this is actually a case. Trump called um, Obama, celebrated the 10th anniversary of the the American Recovery and and Reinvestment Act, um, ARRA, which was the stimulus bill that they passed um, after he took office. And Trump called it a con job yesterday. I mean, they're both they're both responsible. They actually both get to take credit. And but but Trump's in office. Well, and what is what is uh, encouraging, discouraging, depending on your view, where you stand depends on where you sit. If you're Jim, you're looking at that economy and you're saying it's uh, wind in the sails of of the president's reelection. If you're looking at it from the Democratic side, you say with a very strong economy, which the president gets credit for, whether he did it or not, that's DNR, that's bipartisan. With a very strong economy, Trump is the most unpopular president in modern American history. So even with it, he can be beaten. You're back to those 30,000 votes in, in Pennsylvania, we discussed. But for sure, it it is the centerpiece of his reelection. And well, I mean, he ran on people yeah, I think, I think you're being also- left behind. And the fact that he was, that he cared about the people that felt that they, they were being left behind. The question is, when those people go to the polls, do they go to the polls in November? Um, and if they do, do they feel like he has followed through on what he said he was going to do? That's to me where China comes in. And I think he can actually claim that he followed through on from a big picture perspective on what he said he was going to do for, for the people that felt like they were being left well, behind. Wait, wait, he followed through on what he said he was going to do. He imposed tariffs and destroyed the American uh, agricultural communities, destroyed, destroyed American that, farmers. Nobody's buying that, that That's finish. destroyed. You're insulting the American destroyed farmers American right now. Farmers and, then, <laughs> and then resuscitated them with tens of billions of dollars of government subsidies to make up for the damage that the tariffs did. So are the farmers with Trump? Yeah, I, I I suppose they are, Jim. I think they would be, but but they are doing better or not. They're doing whatever they're doing, thanks to ruinous tariffs and then a unprecedented government largesse. Mark, so, so you don't if, think he should have taken on China? 
I do think he should have taken on China. I don't think taking on China with the exact tariff program that that he did was the way to do it. More sanctions. How would you have done it, Mark? Freeze them out of the world economy. Just just like they've done in the past. They haven't worked in the past. And now he he gets them to the table and and they come to the table and they make a deal, something they've never done before. And they actually put it in writing this time, something they had never done before. Mark, nobody's buying that we could have done it through sanctions. The Democrats are even retreating on and, this issue. We win on that Here's one. how unpredictable life is. We're all sitting here today, whether you're right, I'm right. However we got here with China policy, we're all now rooting for the Chinese economy not to collapse under this right. coronavirus threat. So it's just one more reminder of uh, of how unpredictable and unintended consequences are. I blame, I want to I want to be very clear. Yes, I blame Trump for everything. When it rains, it's his fault. I haven't figured out yet how to blame him for the coronavirus. I'm not there yet. I love okay? it. I love it. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you're just being honest with us. I yourself, admit it. Mark, it's yeah, great. I admit it. So let's let's since Mark pivoted, let's pivot um away from the election and let let's Jim, let's talk about the independent federal judiciary. There was news this morning that um, Judge Roof from Philadelphia, uh, who sits in Philadelphia, who runs the Association of Federal Judges, is calling an emergency meeting to talk about the backdrop here of the administration's interference in the independence of the federal judiciary. I mean, Jim. I don't know how you defend what he's doing from a rule of law perspective, um, but I'm sure you have an answer. So, so tell us. So let's let's look at the facts here, and and I think everybody needs to take a little bit of a breath here. It was very easy to jump all over this one because of the president's tweet that came after the decision had already been baked. The According of Justice, to Barr. right? So this idea that it, or right, or, right? Well, I think he's going to go and 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 be sworn and testify before Congress and agreed immediately to do that and has said that the president's making his job impossible with the tweets relating to matters that are ongoing at Department of Justice. So I think at the outset, what you have to let, let's let's assume for a second, Mark, you know, we could jump in and say, according to Justice Department, according to Justice Department, that the facts play out the way that the Justice Department have stated that that this was something that you know, the line prosecutors had a disagreement with their supervisors that this was brought to the DOJ as is customary in these big political and, and corruption cases. It happens all the time. As we know, Mark, it happened in her Biederman case uh, here in Philadelphia where there was a disagreement among the line prosecutors, the supervisors. They took it up to DOJ. He got a reduced recommendation in his sentencing and the, and the and the line prosecutors here in Philadelphia boycotted it. I just read in the paper today, they said the difference in that is that it wasn't one of the president's buddies. Well, in this case, the same thing happened. You had, yeah, and it just so happens that this guy is one of the president's buddies, but you had a disagreement on, on, on an issue as it relates to a sentence that takes seven to nine years for something that, you know, in recent history, you can point to a lot of examples where seven to nine years just is not justified here, that the, that the escalating circumstances were not justified. 
that this could have been a judgment call one way or the other. In this case, the Justice Department, after hearing from supervisors and line prosecutors and the U.S. attorney himself, make a decision. And, and, and the only thing they've done is make a recommendation in a revised filing with the court. It's still up to the but court as to what the really court wants to do with it. bad optic. And optics actually matter here. And the president's tweets actually matter. And changing your recommendation at the 11th hour and 59th minute actually matters. I mean, but that's what happened in, in Philadelphia, Mark. Although it doesn't get all the the fa- the pop and circumstance, just you know why it didn't? Because it it wasn't someone that was connected with the president of the United States. And I agree with you that optics matter. But you know what? What also matters that justice is served. And I think a lot of people can agree that that was a really have heavy sentence for what he was charged with and what he was convicted of. Mark. Jim, if we assume all the facts to be as the uh, White House and Department of Justice have presented them, then it still looks awful and shouldn't have happened. But I'm not assuming all of those facts. We'll learn more when Barr testifies. That will that will be an interesting day to say the least. But I don't think anybody believes anybody. Maybe you do. If you do, you're the only person I know. Nobody believes that Trump didn't in some way communicate to Barr, maybe not picking up the telephone and telling him, but in some way Trump communicated to Barr that he had to fix that sentencing memo. And that's where this went wrong. Is seven to nine too much? Maybe. Is it not enough? Maybe. You can disagree. Reasonable prosecutors can disagree about that sentence. But it is simply wrong. It looks wrong and it is wrong for the president of the United States in a case involving the special prosecutor who investigated him and involving his oldest political ally to tell the attorney general to change a sentence recommendation. That is not what happened in the Viterman case. And that is what everyone knows Happened no, a here. bunch of lawyers went. That's what went happened. Went to DOJ. Here. The lawyers representing doubt, Biederman went to DOJ. Trump communicated that to Barr. I, I absolutely do, and and this is why, Mark. Because look, I, I, you can you can do that all you want. What tells me if the line prosecutors in this case, meaning the supervisors in the U.S. Attorney's Office, who are not political folks by and large, and probably not in this instance, make it have questions about about the the sentence of this individual. Because let's face it, from time to time, lawyers, we've all done it, especially litigators, where you have a case, you hold on tight to it, you stick to your guns, and at the end of the day, that's why at DOJ, there is this supervisory chain of command to look at these matters. And let's remember, the guy who resigned with all the fanfare, you know, was an, was associate counsel to President Obama. I would never say that his decision making had anything to do with his political leanings, but no one's talking about that. And I Jim, think it's would, important to make that point. The gravest work in the Obama White House for Trump to tell Barr to change the sentencing recommendation. Would it be wrong? It would be lawful. It would be lawful here for him to do that. Should he do it? No. And I think every any person that served in the Justice Department would it. agree that the but president of the United it. States. And we're going to find but, out he did but, it. But he, he, but he did Barr it in a said, tweet after the fact. All Barr said it's, it was that he didn't talk to the president about it. Under oath, we're going to find out. 
that the president told Mulvaney to call Barr. You know how this works. And everybody in this country knows that Barr did Trump's bidding and it's wrong. Mark, I don't know. I think that's a little bit of a bridge too far. Mark. I, I, I think mean, that's you don't, a stretch. don't say that. Like we don't, we don't, you don't have to say that, Mark. Like Trump, as soon as, and, and as, as soon as this recommendation came out, I think we were all taken aback by the fact that Trump tweeted that the sentence was too harsh and that it should be something should be done about it. It's just wrong. Let me use let me use one other example for you, Mark, because you defended this on television with me back in the 2016 cycle. Was it wrong for Bill Clinton to sit on that tarmac <laughs> with Attorney General Loretta Lynch? When, when his wife was under investigation, he was that wrong? Yes. And I said, roll the tape. Okay. So, Where's so, the tape? But at that he time, but you never, and you never heard me say, you never heard me say, Mark, that we know how this works and that Bill Clinton was putting his thumb on the scale. I never said that. I said that it was wrong for him to have that meeting. I don't, I don't, I firmly believe that he did not put his thumb on that scale on that airplane, but the fact that he, that he sat on that airplane, the fact that she took the meeting on that airplane was absolutely out of bounds. It was wrong. The optics were terrible. But at the end of the day, no one was no one was no one was calling on Loretta Lynch to resign over that. His thumb on the scale here. You know why? Because we all knew what happened there. You know, the right decision was going to be made in the justice. With his tweet for a second and admire I mean, Jim has really honed his his uh, production skills, if you will, with the yeah, right. CNN gig. He is formidable. No, he, Schultz gets, I, I watch it, he gets talking points all day from all of these Republican is groups that what it and is? probably the White House. And he sits there with, now Mark's he sits bitter there because with I a highlighter. His, his talking points from 16. I'm He's coming with talking points next time. Listen, regardless <laughs> of whether... The decision had been made. There's always, we've all been in and around government. There's always another side to these things. There's always nuance. But Trump tweeting is fundamentally problematic, Jim. It's problematic for the president to be bullying the Justice Department. It's inconsistent with the rule of law. Presidents don't do it. Members of Congress don't do it. It's fundamentally wrong. Okay, so let's go back to, again, the Obama administration and the overreach that occurred there as it related to Holder and this whole issue of the the ATF issue um, back at the Obama administration. You don't think the president had discussions with Holder about that issue? Presidents talk to their attorneys general all the time. In this instance, I don't believe that the president of the United States directly put his thumb on the scale. And when I say directly, meaning he made a call to the attorney general and said, hey, take care of my buddy here. Well, if you're I don't believe that happened judge, in this case. If you're a sitting federal judge to. and you know a lot of them, if you're a sitting federal judge, how do you feel about what he's doing? He put Jackson in, in, in Amy, Amy Jackson in a very difficult position here as it relates to this sentencing no question about it so we'll, we'll have to see me, what happens that's the point it it is an attempt to influence the judiciary it puts 
judge is in a bad spot. Yeah, but the judiciary is independent by, you know, by its nature, but it does put her in a very difficult position. But, you know, judges are appointed to do the right thing and, and they don't hear they're not supposed to hear the crowd noise. Right. And they're supposed to look at the look at these cases and I make know. judgments as to sentencing. I'm Jim, anxious to crowd see what noise she does. Is one thing. The president of the United States is another. And look, I. If, if you're a sitting federal judge, I don't think it matters. You think John you think Roberts it's sitting federal judge is going to be bullied the judiciary? by the president of the United States? No, but do you think John Roberts is going to be bullied probably by the president? Probably not. But probably Definitely not. not. No, John Roberts is not going to be bullied by the president. But I think, I don't know, Jim. I think Vince I mean, Jackson is going to hand down an appropriate sentence. I don't know what that is. It's for her to determine notwithstanding the recommendations from both sides. I think it's likely to be a heavier, not a lighter sentence. I think she has had Which, it. by the way, Roger that's Stone. problematic too. But, but then Trump's going to pardon Stone after the election. I don't think even Trump is dumb enough to do it before the election. And this will have all turned out to have been uh, a, a sideshow. Well, that's the fundamental point, Mark, is that he can pardon the guy so to a certain extent if he feels if he feels this way the entire prosecutorial authority of the united states over to the president since he can pardon anybody he pleases let him just decide every case well no that's not the way it works but also mark let's remember the justice department works the the point the just you know he's the chief law enforcement officer of, of the United States, in addition to the president of the United States. I hate to say it. The person the person he appoints works for him. The Justice Department works for him. The fact that he wants to weigh in on Justice Department policy, he can do any time he wants. As it relates to a particular matter, I think we can all agree he shouldn't be weighing in on particular matters, especially those, well, he shouldn't be weighing on particular matters that relate to people that are close to the president, the optics Barr are bad should associated not have with that. And it does make Barr's Barr job not impossible, like Barr changed said. recommendation after that tweet. I don't care how it got there. I have my own view. But once that tweet came out, it was wrong for the attorney general to submit that. But as we said, Judge Jackson is the actual decider, as George W. Bush would say. And and boy, oh boy, has she got her work cut out for her in figuring out what what sentence to hand down. So let's look. In, as far as the sentencing guidelines go, this thing was about you know the, a, a fourteen, if you will, when the, in this under the sentencing guidelines because Stone had no prior criminal record, and you're looking at a <laughs> yeah, prior criminal to 20, activity, but one no month prior sentence. criminal record. <laughs> Okay, you can you you can I'm, you can say I'm what you want about Roger Stone. He had no prior criminal <laughs> so, record. The, the <laughs> so so Roger Roger Stone has no prior criminal record. Fifteen to twenty one months. You you throw in the escalators in there, and it gets from that to seven to nine years because it goes from fourteen to twenty nine. That's just too much. And, and I think Attorney General Barr looked at this thing and said, yeah, it is too much. And remember, this was something that came out of the Mueller investigation. The prosecutors were gripping tight to this thing. It's something that they were incredibly proud of. You know, he but and, and also remember, but this this thing was prosecuted under the Barr Justice Department and he supported the prosecution. And he said to this day that the guy deserves jail time. 
So let's not let's not let that go by. Barr didn't say the guy should walk free. He just said he shouldn't spend time in jail for seven to nine years. He believes Guys, he deserves jail. That this are we? Does politics change forever? I mean, are we ever going to get away from from the tweeting and the pronouncements from 1600 Pennsylvania like we have under Trump? I I kind of doubt it myself. Is he has he changed politics forever? Look, uh, look I think you're going to see media, uh, Twitter, whatever platform, when new platform comes around, you know, politicians are going to use it to their advantage, you know, to get their message to their constituents, to their voters, to potential voters, to register voters. You know, all of these things are going to be used to their advantage going forward. I think Trump has changed it dramatically with the with the way he uses Twitter. But I think it's also you're seeing more and more politicians. I mean, look at AOC and the other and the movement she's created and what she does with Twitter. I mean, you're seeing that on the Democratic side as well. And and you know what? She's decided and, I, you know, I'm not taking shots at AOC here, but she's decided I'm not going to give any money to the DCCC. I'm not going to support the DCCC. I'm creating my own brand. I'm doing it and taking it directly to the people. And 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 you know what? It scares the mainstream so, politicians Howard, on their side of the aisle. No doubt about throughout it. American history, uh, changes in communications have always changed politics. Going back to the beginning, the two-party system developed in part uh, because of the rise of newspapers in colonial and revolutionary and then early America. And newspapers at that time didn't even pretend to report the news. They were publicity for political positions. Then fast forward all the way to radio, fast forward to television. Every time there is a fundamental advance in communication in this country, it has a dramatic impact on politics. And Trump is a symptom and cause both of all that. But yes is the short answer to your question. I, I think social media is going to change politics forever. We just don't know how. It's not just that we have a president who tweets, although we could do without that. But as you well know, look at uh, the way campaigns are being run where you have micro-targeting of particular voters all by social media. People are opening their laptops in the morning and seeing pictures of Mike Bloomberg if they live in your neighborhood, Jim's neighborhood, my neighborhood. It, yes, yes, technology has, has changed it, and it, it is not necessarily a change for the better. No, and I, I, you go back to 2004, which wasn't all that long ago. The market micro-targeting was done by, you know, looking at folks' magazine subscriptions, right? And that, and then taking that and making a, vo a voter outreach file based upon, you know, people, what kind of car people purchased, you know, magazine subscriptions, those types of things, and all that consumer data that you that, that we were that, that people purchased. Now you just get it at the stroke of a keyboard off of what Facebook. A world. It's, what it's a world. remarkable. Well, guys, let's leave it there. Entertaining discussion as always. Jim, thanks for joining us. We'll continue to do this in the run-up to, uh, to November, the three of us. And uh, everything's happening in November? What? Yeah, a couple things. I don't know. There may be a, 
couple things between now and uh, now in November to keep you interested, Mark. Always a pleasure, Jim. No question. See you. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.